This is Chapter 8, Book 3 of A Journey in Other Worlds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. A Journey in Other Worlds, Book 3, Chapter 8, Cassandra and Cosmology. The water jug being empty, Erolt took it up and, crossing the ridge of a small hill, descended to a running brook. He had filled it and was straightening himself when the stone on which he stood turned, and he might have fallen, had not the bishop, of whose presence he had been unaware, stretched out his hand and upheld him. "'I thought you might need a little help,' he said with a smile, "'and so walked beside you, though you knew it not. Water is heavy, and you may not yet have been accustomed to its saturian weight.' "'Many thanks, my master,' replied Errol, retaining his hand. Were it not that I am engaged to the girl I love, and am sometimes haunted by the thought that in my absence she may be forgetting me, I should wish to spend the rest of my natural life here, unless I could persuade you to go with me to the earth. By remaining here, replied the spirit with a sad look, you would be losing the most priceless opportunities of doing good. Neither will I go with you, but as your distress is real, I will tell you of anything happening on earth that you wish to know. Tell me, then, what the person now in my thoughts is doing. She is standing in a window facing west, watering some forget-me-nots with a small silver sprinkler which has a ruby in the handle. Can you see anything else? Beneath the jewel is an inscription that runs, By those who in warm July are born, a single ruby should be worn. Then will they be exempt and free from love's doubts and anxiety. Marvelous! Had I any doubts as to your prescience and power, they would be dispelled now. One thing more let me ask, however. Does she still love me? In her mind is but one thought, and in her heart is an image, that of the man before me. She loves you with all her soul. My most eager wish is satisfied, and for the moment my heart is at rest, replied Errol, as they turned their steps towards camp. Yet such is my weakness by nature, that ere twenty-four hours have passed I shall long to have you tell me again. I have been in love myself, replied the spirit and know the feeling. Yet to be of the smallest service to you gives me far more happiness than it can give you. The mutual love in paradise exceeds even the lover's love on earth, for it is only those that loved and can love that are blessed. You can hardly realize, the bishop continued, as they rejoined Bearwarden and Cortland, the joy that a spirit in paradise experiences when, on reopening his eyes after passing death, which is but the portal, he finds himself endowed with sight that enables him to see such distances and with such distinctness. The solar system with this ringed planet, its swarm of asteroids, and its intra-mercurial planets, one of which, Vulcan, you have already discovered, is a beautiful sight. The planets nearest the sun receive such burning rays that their surfaces are red-hot, and at the equator 
at perhelion are molten. These are not seen from the earth, because rising or setting almost simultaneously with the sun, they are lost in its rays. The great planet beyond Neptune's orbit is perhaps the most interesting. This we call Cassandra, because it would be a prophet of evil to any visitor from the stars who should judge the solar system by it. This planet is nearly as large as Jupiter, being 80,000 miles in diameter, but has a specific gravity lighter than Saturn. Bode's law, you know, says, write down 0, 3, 6, 12, 24, 48, 96. Add 4 to each, and get 4, 7, 10, 16, 28, 52, 100 and this series of numbers represents very nearly the relative distances of the planets from the sun. According to this law, you would expect the planet next beyond Neptune to be about five billion miles from the sun, but it is about nine billion five hundred million, so that there is a gap between Neptune and Cassandra, as between Mars and Jupiter, except that in Cassandra's case, there are no asteroids to show where any planet was. We must, then, suppose it is an exception to Bode's law, or that there was a planet that has completely disappeared. As Cassandra would be within the law if there had been an intermediary planet, we have good prima facie reason for believing that it existed. Cassandra takes, in round numbers, a thousand years to complete its orbit, and from it the sun, though brighter, appears no larger than the earth's evening or morning star. Cassandra has also three large moons, but these, when full, shine with a pale gray light, like the old moon in the new moon's arms, in that terrestrial phenomenon when the earth, by reflecting the crescent's light, and that of the sun, makes the dark part visible. The temperature at Cassandra's surface is but little above the cold of space, and no water exists in the liquid state, it being as much a solid as aluminum or glass. There are rivers and lakes, but these consist of liquefied hydrogen and other gases, the heavier liquid collected in deep places, and the lighter, with less than half the specific gravity of ether, floating upon it without mixing, as oil on water. When the heavier penetrates to a sufficient depth, the interior being still warm, it is converted into gas and driven back to the surface, only to be recondensed on reaching the upper air. Thus it may happen that two rains composed of separate liquids may fall together. There being but little of any other atmosphere, much of it consists of what you might call the vapor of hydrogen and many of the well-known gases and liquids on earth exist only as liquids and solids, so that were there mortal inhabitants on Cassandra they might build their houses of blocks of oxygen or chlorine, as you do of limestone or marble, and use ice that never melts in place of glass for transparency. They would also use mercury for bullets in their rifles, just as inhabitants of the intra-Vulcan planets at the other extreme might, if their bodies consisted of asbestos, or were in any other way non-combustibly constituted, bathe in tin, lead, or even zinc, 
which ordinarily exist in the liquid state, as water and mercury do on earth. Though Cassandra's atmosphere, such as it is, is mostly clear, for the evaporation from the rivers and icy Mediterraneans is slight, the brightness of even the highest noon is less than an earthly twilight, and the stars never cease to shine. The dark base of the rocky cliffs is washed by the frigid tide, but there is scarcely a sound, for the pebbles cannot be moved by the weightless waves, and an occasional murmur is all that is heard. Great rocks of ice reflect the light of the gray moons, and never a leaf falls or a bird sings. With the exception of the mournful ripples, the planet is silent as the grave. The animal and plant kingdoms do not exist, only the mineral and spiritual worlds. I say spiritual, because there are souls upon it, but it is the home of the condemned in hell. Here dwell the transgressors who died, unrepentant, and those who were not saved by faith. This is the one instance in which I do not enjoy my developed sight, for I sometimes glance in their direction, and the vision that meets me as my eyes focus distresses my soul. Their senses are like an imperfect mirror, magnifying all that is bad in one another, and distorting anything still partially good when that exists. All those things that might at least distract them are hollow, their misery being the inevitable result of the condition of mind to which they became accustomed on earth, and which brought them to Cassandra. But let us turn to something brighter. Though the solar system may seem complex, the sun is but a star among the millions in the Milky Way, and compared with the planetary systems of Sirius, the stars of the Southern Cross, and the motions of the nebula, it is simplicity itself. Compared with the splendor of Sirius, with its diameter of twelve million miles, the sun, measuring but eight hundred and forty thousand, becomes insignificant, and this giant's system includes groups and clusters of planets, many with three times the mass of Jupiter, five and six together, each a different color, revolving about a common center while they swing about their primary. Their numerous moons have satellites encircling them, with orbits in some cases at right angles to the plane of the ecliptic so that they shine perpendicularly on what would correspond to the Arctic and Antarctic regions, while their axes are so inclined that the satellites turn a complete somersault at each revolution, producing glistening effects of ice and snow at the poles. Some of the moons are at a red or white heat, and so prevent the chill of night on the planets, while they shine with more than reflected light. In addition to the five or six large planets in each group, which, however, are many millions of miles apart, there is in some clusters a small planet that swings backward and forward across the common center, like a pendulum, but in nearly a straight line, and while this multiplicity of motion goes on, the whole aggregation sweeps majestically around Sirius, its mighty sun. Our little solar system contains, as we know, 
about one thousand planets, satellites, and asteroids large enough to be dignified by the name of heavenly bodies. Vast numbers of the stars have a hundred and even a thousand times the mass of our sun, and their systems being relatively as complex as ours, in some cases even more so, they contained a hundred thousand or a million individual bodies. Over sixty million bright or incandescent stars were visible to the terrestrial telescopes a hundred years ago, the average size of which far exceeds our sun. To the magnificent telescopes of today they are literally countless, and the number can be indefinitely extended as your optical resources grow. Yet the number of stars you see is utterly insignificant compared with the cold and dark ones you cannot see, but concerning which you are constantly learning more by observing their effect on the bright ones, both by perturbing them and by obscuring their rays. Occasionally, as you know, a star of the twelfth or fifteenth magnitude, or one that has been invisible, flares up for several months to the fourth or fifth, through a collision with some dark giant, and then returns to what it was in the beginning, a gaseous, filmy nebula. These innumerable hosts of dark monsters, though dead, are centers of systems, like most of the stars you can see. A slight consideration of these figures will show that, notwithstanding the number of souls the Creator has given life on earth, each one might in fact have a system to himself, and that however long the little globe may remain, as it were, a mint, in which souls are tried by fire and molded and receive their final stamp, they will always have room to circulate, and will be prized according to the impress their faces or hearts must show. But Sirius itself is moving many times faster than the swiftest cannonball, carrying its system with it, and I see you asking, to what does all this motion tend? I will show you. Many quadrillions of miles away, so far that your most powerful telescopes have not yet caught a glimmer, rests in its serene grandeur a star that we call Cosmos, because it is the center of this universe. Its diameter is as great as the diameter of Cassandra's orbit, and notwithstanding its terrific heat, its specific gravity, on account of the irresistible pressure at and near the center, is as great as that of the planet Mercury. This holds all that your eyes or mind can see, and the so-called motions of the stars, for we know that Sirius, among others, is receding, is but the difference in the rate at which the different systems and constellations swing around cosmos, though in doing so they often revolve about other systems or swing round common centers, so that many are satellites of satellites many times repeated. The orbits of some are circular, and of others elliptical, as those of comets, and some revolve about each other, or as we have seen, about a common point while they perform their celestial journey. A star, therefore, recedes or advances 
as Jupiter and Venus with relation to the Earth. The planet in the smaller orbit moves faster than that in the larger, so that the intervening distances wax and wane, though all are going in the same general direction. In the case of the members of the solar system, astronomical record can tell you when even a most distant known planet has been in opposition or conjunction, but the Earth has scarcely been habitable since the Sun was last in its present position in its orbit around cosmos. The curve that our system follows is of such radius that it would require the most precise observations for centuries to show that it was not a straight line. We call this the universe, because it is all that the clearest eyes or telescopes have been able to see, but it is only a subdivision, in fact, but a system on a vaster scale than that of the Sun or of Sirius. Far beyond this visible universe, my intuition tells me, are other systems more gigantic than this, and entirely different in many respects. Even the effects of gravitation are modified by the changed condition, for these systems are spread out flat, like the rings of this planet, and the ether of space is luminous instead of black, as here. These systems are but in a later stage of development than ours, and in the course of evolution our visible universe will be changed in the same way, as I can explain. In incalculable ages the forward motion of the planets and their satellites will be checked by the resistance of the ether of space and the meteorites and solid matter they encounter. Meteorites also overtake them, and by striking them as it were in the rear, propel them, but more are encountered in front, an illustration of which you can have by walking rapidly or riding on horseback on a rainy day, in which case more drops will strike your chest than your back. The same rule applies to bodies in space. While the meteorites encountered have more effect than those following, since in one case it is the speed of the meteor minus that of the planet, and in the other the sum of the two velocities. With this checking of the forward motion, the centrifugal force decreases, and the attraction of the central body has more effect. When this takes place, the planet or satellite falls slightly towards the body around which it revolves, thereby increasing its speed till the centrifugal force again balances the centripetal. This would seem to make it descend by fits and starts, but in reality the approach is nearly constant, so that the orbits are in fact slightly spiral. What is true of the planets and satellites is also true of the stars with reference to cosmos, though many even of these have subordinate motions in their great journey though the satellites of the moons revolve about the primaries in orbits inclined at all kinds of angles to the planes of the ecliptics, and even the moons vary in their paths about the planets, the planets themselves revolve about the stars, like those of this system about the sun, in substantially the same plane, and what is true of the planets is even more true of the stars in their orbits about cosmos so that when, after incalculable ages, they do fall, they strike this monster sun at or near its equator, 
and, not falling perpendicularly, but in a line varying but slightly from a tangent, and at terrific speed, they caused the Colossus to rotate more and more rapidly on its own axis, till it must become greatly flattened at the poles, as the earth is slightly, and as Jupiter and Saturn are a good deal. Even though not all the stars are exactly in the plane of Cosmos' equator, as you can see there are not as many above as below it, so that the general average will be there, and as all are moving in the same direction it is not necessary for all to strike the same line, those striking nearer the poles, where the circles are smaller, and where the surface is not being carried forward so fast by the giant's rotation, will have even more effect in increasing its speed, since it will be like attaching the driving rods of a locomotive near the axle, instead of near the circumference, and with enough power will produce even greater results. As Cosmos waxes greater from the result of these continual accretions, its attraction for the stars will increase, until those coming from the outer regions of its universe will move at such terrific speed in their spiral orbits that before coming in contact they will be almost invisible, having already absorbed all solid matter revolving about themselves. These accessions of moving matter continually received at or near its equator will cause cosmos to spread out like Saturn's rings till it becomes flat, though the balance of forces will be so perfect that it is doubtful whether an animal or a man placed there would feel much change. But these universes, or more accurately divisions of the universe, already planes, though the vast surfaces are not so flat as to preclude beautiful and gently rolling slopes, are spirit lands, and will be inhabited only by spirits. Then there are great phosphorescent areas, and the color of the surface changes with every hour of the day, from the most brilliant crimson to the softest shade of blue, radiant with many colors that your eyes cannot now see. There are also myriads of scented streams, consisting of hundreds of different and multicolored liquids, each with a perfume sweeter than the most delicate flower, and pouring forth the most heavenly music as they go on their way. But be not surprised at the magnitude of the change, for is it not written in Revelation, I saw a new heaven and a new earth? For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. Nor can we be surprised at vastness, sublimity, and beauty such as never were conceived of, for do we not find this in his word? I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. In this blissful state those that feared God and obeyed their consciences will live on forever. But their rest can never become stagnation, for evolution is one of the most constant laws, and never ceases, and they must always go onward and upward unspeakably blessed by the consciences they made their rule in life, till in purity and power they shall equal or exceed the angels of their Lord in heaven. But you men of finite understanding will ask, 
as I myself should have asked, how, by the law of hydrostatics, can liquids flow on a plane? Remember that, though these divisions are astronomical or geometrical planes, their surfaces undulate, but the moving cause is this. At the center of these planes is a pole, the analog, we will say, of the magnetic pole on Earth, that has a more effective attraction for a gas than for a liquid. When liquids approach the periphery of the circle, and the rapid rotation and decreased pressure cause them to break up, whereupon the elementary gases return to the center in the atmosphere, if near the surface, forming a gentle breeze. On nearing the center, the cause of the separation being removed, the gases reunite to form a liquid, and the centrifugal force again sends this on its journey. "'Is there no way,' asked Bearwarden, "'by which a man may retrieve himself "'if he has lost or misused his opportunities on earth?' "'The way a man lays up treasures in heaven when on earth,' replied the spirit, "'is by gladly doing something for someone else, "'usually in some form sacrificing self. "'In hell no one can do anything for anyone else,' because everyone can have the semblance of anything he wishes by merely concentrating his mind upon it, though when he has it, it is but a shadow, and gives him no pleasure. Thus no one can give anyone else anything he cannot obtain himself, and if he could, since it would be no sacrifice on his part, he would derive no great moral comfort from it. Neither can any one comfort any one else by putting his acts or offenses in a new light, for every one knows the whole truth about himself and every one else, so that nothing can be made to appear favorably or unfavorably. All this, however, is supposing there is the desire to be kind. But how can spirits that were selfish and ill-disposed on earth where there are so many softening influences, have good inclinations in hell, where they loathe one another with constantly increasing strength. Inasmuch as both the good and the bad continue on the lines on which they started when on earth, we are continually drawing nearer to God, while they are departing. The gulf may be only one of feeling, but that is enough. It follows, then, that with God as our limit, which we, of course, can never reach, their limit, in the geometrical sense, must be total separation from Him. Though all spirits, we are told, live forever, it occurs to me that in God's mercy there may be a gradual end, for though to the happy souls in heaven a thousand years may seem as nothing, existence in hell must drag along with leaden limbs, and a single hour seem like a lifetime of regret. Since it is dreadful to think that such unsoothed anguish should continue forever, I have often pondered whether it might not be that, by a form of involution or reversal of the past law, the spirit that came to life evolved from the mineral, plant, and animal worlds may mercifully retrace its steps one by one, till finally the soul shall penetrate the solid rock 
and hide itself by becoming part of the planet. Many people in my day believed that after death their souls would enter stately trees and spread abroad great branches, dropping dead leaves over the places on which they had stood while on earth. This might be the last step in the awful tragedy of the fall and involution of human soul. In this way those who had wasted the priceless opportunities given them by God might be mercifully obliterated, for it seems as if they would not be needed in the economy of the universe. The Bible, however, mentions no such end, and says unmistakably that hell will last forever, so that in this supposition, as in many others, the wish is probably father of the thought. But, persisted Bearwarden, how about deathbed repentances? Those, replied the spirit, are few and far between. The pains of death at the last hour leave but little room for aught but vain regret. A man dies suddenly, or may be unconscious some time before the end, but they do occur. The question is, how much credit is it to be good when you can do no more harm? The time to resist evil and do that which is right is while the temptation is on and in its strength. While life lasts there is hope, but the books are sealed by death. The tree must fall to one side or the other. There is no middle ground, and as the tree falleth, so it lieth. This, however, is a gloomy subject, and one that in your heart of hearts you understand. I would rather tell you more of the beauties and splendors of space, of the orange, red, and blue stars, and of the tremendous cyclonic movements going on within them, which are even more violent than the storms that rage in the sun. The clouds, as the spectroscope has already shown, consist of iron, gold, and platinum in the form of vapor, while the openings revealed by sunspots, or rather star-spots, are so tremendous that a comparatively small one would contain many dozen such globes as the earth. I could tell you also of the mysteries of the great dark companions of some of the stars, and of the stars that are themselves dark and cold, with naught but the far-away constellations to cheer them, on which night reigns eternally, and that far outnumber the stars you can see. Also of the multiplicity of sex and extraordinary forms of life that exist there, though on none of them are there mortal men like those on the earth. Nature, in the process of evolution, has in all these cases gone off on an entirely different course, the most intelligent and highly developed species being in the form of marvelously complex reptiles, winged serpents that can sing most beautifully, but whose blood is cold, being prevented from freezing in the upper regions of the atmosphere by the presence of salt and chemicals, and which are so intelligent that they have practically subdued many of these dark stars to themselves. On others the most highly developed species have hollow, bell-shaped tentacles, into which they inject 
two or more opposing gases from opposite sides of their bodies, which in combination produce a strong explosion. This provides them with an easy and rapid locomotion, since the explosions find a sufficient resistance in the surrounding air to propel the monsters much faster than birds. These can at pleasure make their breath so poisonous that the lungs of any creatures except themselves inhaling it are at once turned to parchment. Others can give their enemies or their prey an electric shock, sending a bolt through the heart, or can paralyze the mind physically by an effort of their wills, causing the brain to decompose while the victim is still alive. Others have the same power that snakes have, though vastly intensified, mesmerizing their victims from afar. Still others have such delicate senses that in a way they commune with spirits, though they have no souls themselves, for in no part or corner of the universe, except on earth, are there animals that have souls. Yet they know the meaning of the word, and often bewail their hard lot in that no part of them can live when the heart has ceased to beat. Ah, my friends, if, like the aesthetic reptilia, we knew that when our dust dissolved our existence would be over, we should realize the preciousness of what we hold so lightly now. Man and the spirits and angels are the only beings with souls, and in no place except on earth are new souls being created. This gives you the greatest and grandest idea of the dignity of life and its inestimable value, but it is as difficult to describe the higher wonders of the stellar worlds to you as to picture the glories of sunset to a blind man, for you have experienced nothing with which to compare them. Instead of seeing all that really is, you see but a small part. This is the end of Chapter 8 in Book 3 of A Journey in Other Worlds. Recording by Tom Weiss.